Your turn. <laughs> yeah. In the chant this morning, I talked about consciousness not being self. And maybe that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness, but what, what is consciousness? Um, you know, we have these chanting books, and, and uh, periodically they're reviewed, and there's like the most phenomenal kind of fierce debates about whether it should be called consciousness or sense consciousness or another kind of consciousness. And these things, it's incredible how much heat can go into whether it's this, that, or the next thing. I prefer the sense consciousness as the, as the, as the translation. So um, with, any, with any contact, there's, there's sight there's uh, an object that is seen, and then there's the sense consciousness that knows that. So the sense consciousness that arises dependent on the other two is um, something that arises and passes away. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is, is contemplating things in terms of dhamma or groups, and that has to do with uh, the hindrances and then the sense bases and the the seven factors of enlightenment and the four noble truths. So um, the third foundation is just looking at objects of mind as they're arising in terms of of memory or thought or mood or a perception or the kind of the story. Those are all mental uh, formations or mind objects that we can know. And then the the fourth object, the fourth foundation, is to, to begin to start seeing that in terms of themes of Dhamma. So uh, we'll, we'll, speak about, we'll speak about that this evening before the evening, evening uh, tea time. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. Just in practice this morning, um, Just contemplating, been contemplating what is awareness, and definitely from the semantic, but also from an experiential level, when I meet the sensation or whatever it is that are, is arising, there is definitely a, there's like a sense of ownership. Like there is a sense of it is mine, and I don't know if it's because. It has something to do with consciousness, I think, that it's going through the, percep- the the faculties, and so there is some kind of identification or something with it. Identification is pervasive and it's subtle, but it doesn't because it's there and it's subtle doesn't mean that it's actually a permanent feature. And so one of the things that happens with meditation is the whole experience of self and the whole process of identification begins to shift. And so it's it's just a question of of continuing to contemplate, continuing to stay, and to see, stay with the process and see what unfolds from it. You know, one of the last fetters that disappears with, you know, there's four different stages of enlightenment. And so the first, the first stage of enlightenment is when there's, there's absolutely a clear seeing of the, of the nature of mind. It's just, it's just absolutely clear. And with that, with that, you know, the personality belief is illuminated for what it is and it's disbanded. 
But the fourth, at the, it's only at the fourth stage where conceit is disbanded. So personality belief is disbanded at the first stage, but there's, there's three more stages of enlightenment before conceit is actually disbanded. So there's, there's ways in which this stuff is really um, tenacious, you know? It's really kind of strong in our system. The, the experience of I am. So I'm not terribly surprised that the way you personally experience things is through the I am. But that's a thought, that's a construct, in that when you're able to see that as that, and then sometimes what's also happening when you see it is, is that you can also see spaces around it, or see when it's not there, or see when it somehow dissolves. And that's also fascinating to see when you know, perception can arise without I am as the background that it's experiencing it with. I mean, that's a very different thing. So the experience of self and the dissolution of self is one of the things that happens uh, in meditation practice. But also there are situations in life sometimes where that experience is also very strong and very prevalent, the experience of self and the dissolution of self. And for most anybody who goes through a dissolution experience, it's deeply unsettling and disorienting until one gets through the, the fear around it. And then one recognizes the peacefulness and the spaciousness that's present in that. And so I, I have, I've been through that a few times. And you know, the times when I've been through that, it was just, it was just amazing because you know, the, it was like, you know, just it was like there was nothing I could hold on to in the world and, and take to be who I was, or, 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 or. or um, you know, the ways that I had formulate myself, you know, of being part of this group, of being part of this clan, of being part of this whatever, you know, and, and all of the other things, all of it was dissolving. And so there was no place where I could locate myself in relationship to the outer thing. The outer thing wasn't holding. It was all falling apart. And, you know, obviously these are very unsettling situations. But one of the reasons why it's important to practice is because there are times where that happens naturally and there's times where that happens in meditation where one's ability to locate oneself in relationship to structure, to family, to group, to clan, to, you know, even things as simple as as gender or orientation, all of that begins to kind of dissolve. And... you know, it, it's not like that. that is a permanent thing. It's something that one moves through. 
But then when it does reconfigure, it's like, yeah, it does reconfigure, but I can't believe it with the quite the same kind of intensity that I did before, you know? And so there's... Uh, it shifts one's perception about oneself and the world very dramatically. So one of the ways in which meditation is supportive is, is that it, it gives one's the capacity to bear with the, the kind of enormous uncertainty of what's happening when the normal kinds of ways that we locate ourselves are then no longer present. And waiting until the situation changes and then there's a kind of ground that we can rest with. So, you know, some of the, like the pure awareness practices or just allowing a, you know the big mind practices or the sound of silence practices they're, they're very open and spacious and they they give they they give practice for being with groundlessness and that's a really important thing to learn how to feel you know to edge oneself into because the solidity of the self is partly in place because of the inability or the discomfort or the lack of familiarity with the groundlessness of what's happening when that's not there. So now, obviously, this is quite a different uh, conversation than what happens when people don't have a cohesive sense of self from lack of um, developmental foundations being intact. And so the the irony is, is, is that there needs to be a fairly strong, healthy sense of ego in terms of knowing your boundaries and knowing who you are and what you're made of and, and what you, who you belong to in order for those then constructs to then dissolve and then to see that they are not permanent or fixed. But when that disillusion takes place after there's a kind of healthy sense of of knowing who you are. That's an altogether different experience than the dissolution that takes place before that is very strongly intact, you know. So I remember, you know, there was a breakfast conversation that was, a, was quite sweet, Ajahn, Ajahn Viridamo. I don't, I don't even remember the context, what was going on in the monastery at that time, but there was, he was saying at breakfast, he said, you know, for you know, as a group of celibates. So here we were, a mixed group of men and women, celibates practicing together. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're into men, if you're into women, or if you're into water buffaloes. <laughs> he says, as a celibate, you watch desire arise in the mind, you experience it, and you watch it release. It's like, you know, that's what we're doing. So from the transcendent perspective, he was right. But from the personal perspective, he's missing a piece, which is, is that we actually have to know where we are and how our own desire is arising. It's not that we can just say, well, because we're practicing within a transcendent way, then we don't need to know who we are. And so sometimes what happens is that people are interested in meditation and they come to monasteries because they think, oh, not-self. I, I have a not-self all the time. I don't have a clue who I am. <laughs> I don't have a clue where I belong. I don't have a clue what my sexuality is or my orientation is, and I fit perfectly within the Buddhist sphere. <laughs> and that's wrong understanding. That's misplacing the transcendent understanding into a, a kind of a developmental process 
which if we don't navigate that, we don't have the fundamental foundational strength to then be able to hold um, attention as the dissolution happens without having all kinds of other really significant and very unfortunate consequences. You know, so um, there's quite a significant difference between the kind of transcendent process of disillusion and the kind of psychotic process of disillusion when, when a person doesn't have enough ego strength to hold together what's actually happening. And so there, it's, it's ironic, but what's actually needed in the process of letting go is a much clearer sense of who one is, where one's boundary is, and you know, the way one is shaped and configured. Yes, Priyan. Question. I'm, I'm still a little bit confused about when you're meditating between letting go, concentration, and contemplation. Uh, you know, when to do what, at what So time. concentration is the ability for the mind to focus on a particular object and stay there and absorb into the object, Okay. But in concentration, you're not absorbing into the thought, you're absorbing into the direct experience. So like with the breath, you know, attention uh, solidifies and comes together with the breath. That's concentration, okay? Contemplation is the ability to know what's happening at a present moment. And contemplation can be present where there's not very much concentration at all. So, you know, we can be uh, crying or feel overwhelmed or feel really angry and often in situations like that, there's not very much concentration. But contemplation is the ability to know that, that that's what's happening. And then the right response is to begin to get a sense of how one's reacting to that. So crying or anger or confusion in themselves is not an issue. The issue is, is if we are if we're identifying with it, if we're not wanting to be with it, if we're acting from a place that's unskillful around it, those are things that we need to watch out for. So contemplation is the ability to see what's happening and then how we're relating to it. Letting go is, that, is, the, is the disidentification with whatever it is that we're dealing with. So if, if, we're, if in contemplation we see that there's an attachment to something, there can be an attachment to pain, there can be an attachment to anger, there can be an attachment to holding on to the idea that I've been hurt or harmed or that I've done something wrong, okay? So there can be an attachment to some aspect of memory. Letting go is the, is the willingness to divest, to, to, to pull one's attachment away from whatever one's clinging into and just watch what happens when you do that, you know? It's a little bit like the forgiveness meditation. One sets an intention to allow it to release, but then releases the expectation of what happens around it. So, so, so that's a part where I'm a little bit unclear. So it looks like contemplation. You can carry a story a little bit, but then letting go, get rid of the story and go back. Contemplation doesn't carry a story. Contemplation is aware of a story. Okay. <laughs> Good try, Priyan. <laughs> yeah. Does that help? Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. What are some some advice? What some advice you can give if you can't let something go that you're attached to? So when you can't let something go, then sometimes one has to let it be. Yeah. So this has to do with working with stuff. This is the same kind of thing of how do you deal with the stuff that is not, you know, the the normal kinds of ways of relating to it are not releasing. And again. So if you can't let it go, then let it be. And then sometimes what's helpful is to get a, a sense of, well, what's underneath this, you know? So like for myself, when I was explaining that, you know, there was something that had happened that I was, I was really very angry about, and it took ages, it took years for it to, to kind of release. And it didn't, in fact, release until I began to see, well, what I was really angry about wasn't the specific situation that I thought I was angry about. It was actually something that happened when I was much younger, and as a result, it was much harder to come to terms with. Okay? So after I did all my magic wand things, you know, of, of metta and death and, you know, forgiveness, I mean, for years, and none of them worked, I realized, well, this is not where the problem actually is. Okay, it's not here, it's somewhere else. And I had an intuition, I wasn't quite sure, but I had an intuition that I would be able to find it if I investigated in another way. And then when I did that, and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is actually the stuff that I'm not able to come to terms with. When I opened up that lovely squiggly can of worms and let all of those worms into the earth, then the other one just was absolutely not an issue. So that's why, you know, meditation is, takes quite a lot of finesse because sometimes things are not exactly as they appear. It looks like I'm angry at this thing, but that actually is not the right thing. So one starts with what one knows, and then if that isn't working, then one begins to draw other resources. And so then after many, many, many years of meditation, just watching things arise and cease in the way that one does without having a kind of investment in the story... Then I began to do other kinds of things which are bringing in other modalities, which include interacting with the story, to see if through interacting with the story I could get a little bit more understanding about what was actually in it for me, and then work with the emotions that I could see that were connected to it, and the stories that were connected to it that were not yet conscious. So again, all of these modalities, it wasn't to solidify the story, it was just to make conscious what wasn't conscious in order that then I could work with it. Does that help? Yeah. So, you know, we have, we have such a deep longing not to have pain. I mean, it is so deep, this longing. You know, and we have all kinds of hopes for magic wands, you know, that the fairy godmother will come and whoop, whoop, it'll be gone. But that has absolutely not been my experience. <laughs> You know, for me, my experience is, is that I have to meet what's actually happening and then really feel where it's actually residing. Where has it landed in me? And so some of the things is, is that it, like some of the emotions that I can't let go of, they're because they're connected to belief systems that I can't let go of. And then when I see the belief system, then I think, oh my goodness, you know, this is not helpful any longer to hold on to this. So it takes me into, it's like a deeper and deeper layers of where the stuff is actually landed in me, you know? So anytime something happens that's unsettling, you know, 
like something can happen and one can have a big, huge trigger, you know, reaction. And what one just needs to feel is where did that land, you know? What happened? Where did that land in me? What caught? What caught? Where did I feel that? And that one is able to bring one's attention to that of where one feels it, then that's the place where one has leverage to begin to work with doing what's needed in order for openness and releasing. But you see, you know, one of the things that also happens is is that, you know, we can get a lot of purchase out of being hard done by, you know, or of doing harm, you know. Anything that solidifies a sense of self, you know, that part of our psyche that likes to locate itself is happier with that than not being able to locate itself anywhere. So we really have to watch out that we're not just rehashing the same old chewed, gnarled bones that are, don't have blood and they don't have marrow and they don't have anything on them just because chewing on something is more comfortable and more familiar. I, I can recognize myself as being miserable. That's familiar to me. <laughs> not being able to locate myself, forget that. You know? So... We pick on stuff, some of it is a stuff that actually doesn't have any more purchase, except for the fact that there's some trace of identity still connected to it because we're not yet comfortable with not being able to locate ourselves if we let it go. That is really important to watch out for. And that's why, you know, I I have said many times, enlightenment is an acquired taste, you know, We have to develop the capacity to endure it. (laughs) You know, because, you know, if I handed out a piece of paper and I asked you to sign your name, you know, everyone said, yeah, free from suffering, no problem. I signed my name. But faced with the reality, which is, is that you can't locate yourself either in your suffering or attaching to your happiness, it's like, I'm out of here, you know? And so one has to develop the resource and the capacity to stay present with non-suffering because our attention will immediately go to something that's unpleasant or pleasant because it's, we can locate ourselves in that. It's like hanging out with neutral. There's nothing exciting about neutral. That's its nature. It's not exciting. <laughs> It's not only the drama queens that have a hard time with neutral. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, our system is organized around trying to locate ourselves. And so sometimes the way we have located ourselves is through being terribly unhappy. Or being terribly unsuccessful or being whatever it is. And so we form an identity around that. And then we use that identity to support our reactions in the way we live. And so we need to look and see, is that that what I'm doing? You know, and is that actually in accordance with, with the Dhamma? And is that something I want to put more energy into? You know, we have to check it out. There is a chapter I read, I can't remember which book it was, but Carolyn Miss did a whole chapter on victim psychology. It was brilliant, you know, just incredibly astute. 
and how somebody she knew or maybe one of her friends you know they introduced themselves by their by the the sequences which allowed them to be comfortable being a victim that was their introduction hello my name is and you know i've been through this 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 and this this and this and therefore i'm truly a victim and she didn't want to participate and they were offended and insulted and angry and it was like you know their identity was locked into this that that's who they were they were a victim and uh i mean there are certainly plenty of things that happen in our lives which are horrible and that the experience of genuinely being a victim is something that many of us have to navigate but the the territory of navigating that is different from i taking it as an identity yeah and uh and so in meditation we we get we have an opportunity to see it all really hmm. are there other things that come questions So, um, you know, the the language of the Buddha in, in the in the Pali Canon, which was the scriptures that came after the time of the Buddha, the the word Bodhisattva was never used. The word Bodhisatta was used, and that what the Bodhisatta was the was the person in the process of becoming a a fully enlightened Buddha, okay? So I don't know exactly what happened and when the the terminology of it started, but with the Mahayana and the Tibetan tradition, the the term bodhisattva originated. And bodhisattva is a a person or even sometimes non-human beings that have taken birth with the intention of, of supporting others for the realization of, of, of suffering. So they're kind of like, their M.O. is liberation for themselves and for all beings. Their modus operandi. Yeah? And so the, the Theravada take on that is different than the Mahayana and the Vajrayana take on that, about what the origin of that is. So uh, with, the, with, the, with the Bodhisattva vows, one one makes a commitment to realize enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. That's the commitment. Okay. And how this arose and under what circumstances and whether it means, you know, what kind of path you're in. I don't have that much scholastic knowledge. What I, what I do know is that from my own personal experience, I, I started with this kind of you know, hell-bent and determined, I'm out of here. You know, just get me off the wheel and as fast as possible. You know, I just want out, you know. And that was my focus for the better part of two decades, for 20 years, yeah. And then something in me realized, 
there's something about this which is, is that as far as I run, as fast as I run, as close as I get to I, to nowhere. <laughs> but I needed another. I needed another way of relating to practice. And so, from my own personal experience, I had the intuition that taking the bodhisattva vows would be very helpful because it would reframe practice not in terms of getting out, but actually of coming in, of being with and getting in. And so when I did, it actually had a very profound effect on my practice, and my whole practice shifted after that in a remarkable way. And and it was then where that was the time when I really began to see the the value of, of living with kindness and respect to whatever was arising. And as a result of that, then there were all kinds of layers of my own process that were revealed in the meditation that followed soon after that, which I had never had access to before. And also with that, there came that understanding or the realization that, you know, that as the attention is present, as awareness, one is resting in awareness, there's the experience of no boundary. You know, the physical body is not the limitation of awareness, and the heart, when it's open, the the feeling of compassion, it just flows. It does. It's not limited. It's not limited to the to the edges of my skin. It's not limited to the people that I've got blood ties with. It's not limited. It just there's there's no boundary to where awareness edges are, and therefore there's no boundary to where compassion just flows. And that was is had a quite a significant effect on my understanding and my orientation to practice. So however it arose historically and whatever differences there are in terms of scholars arguing about the different paths, I don't go there. Where I go is what happened to me and what my own personal experience is, which is is that it shifted things in a way which is really helpful. Did you, um, was that offered in a monastery? I always considered that as more of a Mahayana. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was um, doing some teachings, and usually what happens when he's doing teachings is he gives the Bodhisattva vows. And so uh, where I was in the monastery, then everybody everybody went to his teachings, and three-quarters or more of the people in the monastery, including the abbots, took the Bodhisattva vows. I mean, what they made out of them, I'm not sure, but they took them. You know, for me, it had quite an effect. So are they the the precepts? They are slightly different formulations of precepts. So they're the the basic precepts we have, and then the bodhisattva vows have uh, different kinds of ways of relating, different kinds of precepts. Some of them are the same, and some of them are very different. Different question. So the whole uh, path of liberation, what is, where do we, where is all this meditation of being mindful relate to the path? Where, where does it help it? Uh, I'm sure there's an answer to that. I'm, I'm just missing it. So, so in, in, in the path of liberation, there's a, there's a conceptual model of what we're doing and how we're getting there. 
And the meditation is the kind of the actuality or the realization of of the theory. It's actually putting it into practice. So the 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 meditation is the essential ingredient in the path of liberation. It's it's almost impossible to uh, realize liberation without meditating. So of those eight uh, eight four paths, I thought that uh, just by always speaking the truth and forget about the seven other right this right that, I thought I might get a bit of liberation. <laughs> I might be already on the path. It's okay, someday I'll reach it. But now you're saying, apart from those seven that I'm missing, I also should be doing meditation. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of liberation is better than none, (laughs) Shiva. Everything in its own time. Everything in its own time. It's, it's, It's helpful when one really has a feeling for the way things come together in a sense for the value of why one does things even though it can be really hard you know you know some things are hard and they hurt a lot and yet one knows that there's beauty and there's value from doing it but if you don't have that sense you know then it takes a lot of faith to do something if you don't actually have a sense of why you're doing it yeah and so you know everything in its own time certainly living with integrity and generosity and speaking the truth is really helpful but meditation is really important. And so when there's some clarity about how it fits or why it helps or how it helps in your own life to finesse the difference between um, holding on to something, seeing it clearly and letting go, then that's, that's, those are the kinds of experiences where things like this come alive. You know, when you know the taste of a mango, you don't need to ask anybody. You know, you know what it tastes like, and you know how delicious it is, and you know how sweet it is. You know, the same with meditation. When you know yourself, what happens when you let go, and what happens when attention shifts from our normal habits, which are usually around thought, into something else, and the kind of openness and the kind of sense of peacefulness, and the difference between when our attention is grabbing onto objects and we're identifying with those, and when attention is just relaxed in awareness itself, seeing objects come and go. You know, when you've had an experience of what that is, then it, it, it has a different effect on the, the motivation for why we practice. Okay? So I had an interesting thought just during this week. It's like, we sit here and we try to, um, you know, kind of not have conversations and not have a thought process going on. But then again, it's like, okay, go into your pain, go, you know, figure out what it is, not figure out, but, you know, don't be afraid to go into your pain. So really, you're almost on search. So you're almost asking for information, but yet trying to get rid of it. So um, we're not trying to get rid of information. What we're doing is selectively engaging with the thought process in a way which is skillful. So sometimes the thought process is directing our meditation. And sometimes what we're doing is we're 
in, um, directly or deliberately taking attention away from thought in order that attention can be stabilized in other parts of our experience rather than just with what is the, is the habit or the norm or what we're most familiar with. So we spend a few days with just the first foundation of mindfulness in order to kind of reconnect with something other than just our mental processes. But once there is that ground, then we can use thought deliberately in order to bring stuff up in a way which, for some people, experience it as helpful or releasing or insightful. I mean, it's painful, but it's painful partly because all that stuff is there when it's, you know, to bring up. Yeah. But when it's brought up in that kind of a way with awareness, then it can release. So we're doing both. Okay. And I think we've, we've run out of time. It's time for our lunch. Um, I, I'm going to not do Qigong today, but if, if you all would like to do that, and you could probably figure out or remember enough of the exercises and just do together. Yeah. I, I've been up since early in the morning, so I'm a little bit tired. The afternoon sessions, they're the same as usual. What's that? Uh, uh, the afternoon, yeah. Same.